You're listening to I'll Have What She's Podcasting, a film and pop culture podcast hosted by Louise Oliver and Jackie Farmer, two tired feminist millennials giving you opinions you didn't ask for about the content they love. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Good. I suppose right off the bat we should apologise for the slightly um, di- slight difference in, in sound quality than our audience has become used to over the last two podcasts. Yes, we've been a bit spoiled lately. <laughs> but we are back on Zoom for reasons of, well, just everything that's been disrupting Glasgow for the last couple of weeks, including the ongoing pandemic and COP26, which has had Louise quite cleverly <laughs> get out of Dodge. I sure did. I ran away. I'm very, very far north. <laughs> She's living her bucolic cottage core fantasy. I sure am. I fed chickens this morning. It was adorable. I'm looking at the sea and I'm surrounded by ducks and chickens in the Isle of Skye. And I'm quite smug about it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm quite resentful. <laughs> Turns out it was exactly the right thing to do because Glasgow appears to be in absolute chaos. Uh, for a worthy cause, of course. We're all, we're yeah. all in support of the cause, however. It's just to live in Glasgow right now is uh, less than ideal. Yeah. And we were supposed to do an in-person recording last week, but somebody, me, got COVID. So I did the opposite of go to Sky, which was stay in my house for 10 days. She's okay, folks, though, which I'm sure you've um, okay. picked up. She's not coming to you from the afterlife, Alabita. <laughs> you don't need to say her name three times. It's fine. Um, uh, speaking of which, what film are we doing today, Louise Oliver? I don't know. What film could it be? <laughs> could it be Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Actually, I would be fine if uh, Beetlejuice appeared because I know we're probably not supposed to like him, but I think he's great. I think he's hilarious. <laughs> he is. I I don't know about you. When I, was, well, I know I do because we discussed it briefly, but Watching this film, I realised I'd completely just forgotten how utterly bats it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For that reason, we've decided, normally we do tend to go through things chronologically, but I think you could end up looking at a four-hour podcast if we did that. If you are interested in a blow-by-blow podcast on Beetlejuice, there is a podcast called like like Beetlejuice Minute or something. It's like Beetlejuice by the Minute. I'll put it in the show notes and they go through every single podcast is one minute of Beetlejuice and it's very good. There's a lot of really good facts. Super um, niche, but good idea. I think that's probably the only way to do it. <laughs> and it's and it's complete as well. Like they, I think they finished in like 2017. So it's uh, what we're gonna do. No, we're gonna we're gonna go with a chaotic approach, much like the movie itself. You know, I was thinking I, I do love it. It's, it's up there in one of my favourites in, in the pantheon of my favourite films, but it's sort of forgotten why. Like, I, I remember seeing it really young and enjoying it and loving the chaos and thinking Beetlejuice was the best. Like, I remember thinking he was just brilliant, which is weird considering he, there's nothing about him that is not predatory, awful and sleazy. But it, I don't no. know, there's something about Michael Keaton's performance that just makes all of that just very silly and okay. But um, yeah, it's just, it's so weird. And I was thinking to myself on the last watch through, like, how was this pitched? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Beetlejuice being like a bit of a slime ball, the original screenplay was more of a horror. It was, it was yeah. really dark. So he was actually an actual real perv. I found the screenplay, I haven't read it all, but there's like a line, so in the original one, there were two daughters. There was Lydia and she had a wee sister. Mm-hmm. And um, I was looking through and there was one that said, it's like when he meets the Maitlands, and he says to them something like, you know, you're stuck in this dump and you want it all to yourselves. And even though these live guys have paid their hard-earned money for the home of the dreams, you dead guys are going to drive them out in the cold. Mommy, daddy and two little girls, one of whom probably wouldn't say no to a shorter, older man talking about himself. So he was explicitly Ugh. a really problematic perv, um, like a proper creep. Yeah, so, that but, wouldn't have worked. <laughs> No, and he was originally supposed to be like, and I think the original screenplay was like quite racist. Uh, He's described as like a Middle Eastern looking man. Yes. There was just, it was just, it was setting up to be all kinds of not aging well and racist and bad. I read something about this. Yeah. And they had them, they had, they had him speaking in like Pigeon African or something, something really strange like that. And I think he was originally meant to be played by Sammy Davis Jr. in some outline uh, that appeared at some point. So I think credit to Tim Burton, because I, I did read all of this. I, I'm familiar with what you're, yeah. you're saying. And something is popping into my brain that Tim Burton was like, no, this is not, no, the, we're movie not doing that. This is not the movie I want to make. Yeah. Um, and like Michael Keaton improvised something like 90% of his lines, didn't he? So yeah. 
there's also probably a little bit of Michael Keaton being like, yeah, I'm not saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I read somewhere the original screenwriter who was a novelist, Michael something. Michael McDowell. Michael McDowell, that's it. Yeah, so he was he was sort of originally on the screenplay and it was him that had the dark versions of the draft. And then he got basically replaced by, help me out, Jackie, you're normally quite good at this, what was this chap's name? Yes, and then there's Larry Wilson for story and Warren Scarron for Warren screenplay. Warren that's it, yeah. So Warren Scarron is the guy that is responsible for the, the script as we pretty yeah. much see it on screen now. Yeah, he also um, wrote um, Batman and Top Gun. There you go, he's, not, he's doing all right. Did very well. He's only got six credits, but I mean, he's really smashed it. He's, he's a good example of uh, quality over quantity right there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad that version never saw the light of day. Uh, yeah. Because, there, yeah, it's there's something really just in- incredibly charming and likable. And I use the word charming in a sort of very broad sense about, about Michael Keats' performance. And I think it's, again, it comes back to something we touched on with Bill Murray in our Ghostbusters pod, but this is it's more pronounced here, which is like it's the, the joy of playing exclusively for the laughs and trying to be as funny as possible in the context of, of what you're given, the material you're given, which is completely chaotic. Yeah. And, uh, and this role in particular just lends itself to that because what else is he going to do? He's a, he's a, he's a bio-exorcist demon. Yeah. <laughs> like... And doesn't really play in any way like the way the character was originally written either. And it, he's done a few interviews about it where he talks about Tim Burton trying to get him to do the film because most of the cast had to be asked at least twice. Oh, really? um, the only person who said yes quite early was Gina Davis because the woman just knows a good film when she sees one. <laughs> and I think she she was kind of quite new in the scene, but she'd been in The Fly, so she was quite well known. But um, Catherine O'Hara, Alec Baldwin and Michael Keaton were all just like, no, it's too weird. I don't get it. <laughs> and had to be like properly courted. Like Tim Burton had to go out and like see them and be like, no, like it'll be good. And <laughs> somehow they all ended up doing it. I think Winona Ryder as well were just like, um, but what's it about? <laughs> I would love to know what the conversations were that yeah. happened with them. Just that, you just wouldn't have thought that this would be a successful film. Yeah, I would love to know what Tim Burton's elevator pitch was for this movie. Yeah, and Michael Keaton basically just did it because he liked Tim Burton. And like, yeah. he wasn't particularly big at the time because he'd had Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, yeah. That they like, just surprised everyone by doing really well. So that was how... Tim Burton kind of got to be able to do this but um, it wasn't like he didn't have Batman or Edward Scissorhands or any of these big hits under his belt at this point like people didn't really have you know he wasn't yeah. a classic stylistic director the way he would be considered now yeah and I think it's like it was sort of the first collaboration between the two of them that yeah would, would extend to Batman um, my understanding yeah. is that they work really well together they quite like each other uh, Michael Keaton and Tim Burton and I think Michael Keaton had done Mr. Mom which was a pretty big comedy but hadn't he was in a sort of similar boat to Tim Burton this is what like this was like you know the thing yeah uh uh-huh what now and this is the thing that would propel them both I suppose a very interesting choice it could have gone very wrong it could have gone really could have gone so wrong (laughs) um but he ends up doing it and we're glad he did because as you say I think if you'd put a different actor especially with the it seems like the amount of freedom he had with the character it could have not been I think Michael Keaton sounds like he's a nice man sounds like he's like a nice good man when you hear him talk about I can't remember what his son's called because anytime you see him reference he's just referred to as Michael Keaton's hot son <laughs> um, but he's like they're like best friends sounds like a songwriter it's like Sean John Keaton. Douglas John Douglas oh yeah. yeah because Michael Keaton's real name is Michael Douglas mm-hmm. um, but he can have because there's already a Michael Douglas. It's already but, Michael Douglas. But uh, Kirk Douglas's name was Kirk Danielovich. Um, <laughs> so they changed it. But yeah, there was a point when I think like I think I read it in an article in the Guardian or something. And Michael Keaton was saying about it was like, has that ever caused a mix-up? Have you ever discussed it with Michael Douglas? And he was like, Yeah, because I just got like a bit of post through for him and had his phone I've got your letter. <laughs> I don't know why that tickles me so much but that just really makes me laugh. I've got this for you because that's my name that you're using. <laughs> um. 
so Sean Douglas, but like, but he's an award-winning songwriter as well. But he's given speeches and just talked about how like his dad's his best pal and stuff. He just seems like he's a nice man. Yeah. And I did. I googled him alongside me too because I just always try and do that if I'm about to speak highly of a man. Sadly, a sadly, we have to do our due diligence where that's concerned. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yes. Um, Michael Keaton stands up. Not all members of this cast do. No, and I think we'll just skirt over that. To be honest, yeah. I'm not really that yeah. keen to just to dwell no. on that. But yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that because I had my suspicions that he was uh, one of the good ones. People in the industry seem to talk very fondly of him, and um, I think this was a real like game changer for, or not a game changer. Well, no, maybe a game changer because people knew he could be funny, but this performance was just so particularly wild and out there, and made the movie that it was kind of a star making role for Michael Keaton. Not in the sense that it proved that he could do serious work, but I think it just proved a level of versatility and skill that was just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, this guy's probably got plenty up his sleeve in terms of his capabilities. And it is just so fast paced and theatrical and intense. Uh, one of the things that did occur to me while I was watching the movie is actually he's not in it enough. No, he's not in it very much. <laughs> he's not in it very much at all, actually, for a movie that's all about him and seeing his name. It's like, yeah, he, yeah he's, he's, yeah, I want more. <laughs> Yeah, it's something like 14 minutes of screen time he's got and I think the film the film's not super long it's only about an hour and a half yeah yeah we get very little of Beetlejuice and I, I always um, forget until it actually rolls around in the moment that the, uh, the performance of the song Dale it's called the Banana Boat Song I Banana think. Boat Song right yeah I always get to that point and I, I, for every doesn't matter how many times I've seen this movie I'm always surprised in the moment when I realise it's it's actually um, Adam and Barbara that are doing that and it's not yeah. Beetlejuice <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it's such a seminal moment in film and it's like also just so iconic as a comedic moment moment that you just assume as you're kind of trundling along that the protagonist of after which the movie's named is delivering yeah. that but it's not it's so it's weird but yeah I, do, I could do with more Beetlejuice he's just yeah he's great <laughs> yeah you could do with more Beetlejuice but then the other characters are so good like yeah they're all Delia Dietz also it's like Delia Dietz also doesn't have enough screen time yeah true 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 but in true Catherine O'Hara fashion she uh, the screen time that she does have she makes completely iconic there's jam on there. Oh, there's jam everywhere. <laughs> it's all up the walls. And like, it's such a, it just feels like a bit of a Moira Rose origin story <laughs> in places. Or just like, is this what would have happened if she had married someone else? Yeah. <laughs> and moved to a haunted town in Connecticut rather than going to Shit's Creek? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I um I love that character so much, and it's it's interesting. There's something about an underdeveloped relationship between the family members, actually, because yeah. there's something I notice when I watch it that it's not until the end of the movie where Beetlejuice is kind of kind of now being presented as an antagonist, kind of randomly because of the marriage mm-hmm. thing, which kind of comes out of nowhere. I feel like the fact that he has to get married to. Lydia I feel comes out of nowhere (laughs) I think it I think it does and I think the fact that the earlier draft he was like this murderous ghost makes that make more sense but it's only hinted at a little bit like there's the bit when we first meet him and he's reading like the obituaries in the afterlife what's it called the afterlife Um, gazette I think it's it's something something like like that that. (laughs) ridiculous and he's like is like welcoming all of the new dead people and he sees the Maitlands and he says something about like oh they look stupid like they look nice and stupid or something so there is always like that kind of element of like he is he is dodgy he's like is he just like a dodgy car salesman type Mm -hmm. or is he actually a bad person but then he needs Lydia to get out of a particular part of the afterlife he's in and part of me finds it frustrating because it's like right they've just made this happen but then also I think there is maybe a freedom in filmmaking at the time that you wouldn't get away with now where Tim Burton has just created this particular world with these rules and these are the rules it doesn't matter if they don't make sense just accept it and and sit down (laughs) and enjoy yourself like this is it if you kill yourself you have to join the civil service in the afterlife you can do some things as a ghost but not others and just because and if you leave your job at the civil service you are stuck 
and people have to say your name three times for you to get out and then you have to marry somebody for a visa for some reason and <laughs> it's not really clear why <laughs> but I feel like also that only seems to apply to Beetlejuice yeah like and, and this is not a complaint because I think you're absolutely right because the movie really is just a bit of a setup a loosely sketched setup for some brilliant set pieces like the idea that the afterlife is really bureaucratic and the set design for that you know section is phenomenal yeah. and a series of brilliant visual gags as well as script gags and then the central yeah. performance from Michael Keaton so it feels like Tim Burton's like going I'm quickly sketching this in just so I can show you all these brilliant yeah. things and, and we've works. got all these nice people and just like at the end we'll have them all be okay yeah exactly and yeah. and I feel like that's what makes the marriage thing kind of low stakes like it feels like it's sort of like happening to sort of get us to the end of the movie and it doesn't actually feel like Lydia's in any immediate danger <laughs> Yeah, um, or it's like, and he's made it very much like he talks. He talk, talk, calls it a marriage of inconvenience, yeah. and it's very clear. Like this is a this is a sham marriage. It's a, it's a visa marriage. Um, but again, in the original script, it was like no, yeah, um, like Lydia was gonna have a bad time. Yeah, and so I'm very glad that they changed it because I don't think I just don't think we would be talking about it if no. they had done it that way. That is um, a movie that would sink. Uh, like to the to the depths of like only like slightly disturbed people thinking it's yeah. a cult classic. Like Tim Burton probably wouldn't yeah. have made any of the films that we like. No. And again, like I say, this isn't a complaint, but there's just like some things that are hinted at that I would love to see more fully developed in some capacity, yeah. just because they're they're good they're good things. Like for example, it's hinted that Beetlejuice used to work for um oh Juno. gosh Juno, thank you, yeah um and then kind of went rogue and that's just kind of like gently peppered in but not really expanded upon. And the fact that he's a demon, not somebody who's dead, like where does that fit in? Like does he like it's sort of suggested that he's not he hadn't previously been human and then died, but he, he's a demon yeah. of some kind. And I'm kind of intrigued by that what that means in the context in the world. of the app. yeah <laughs> um, so I had read something different that um, there was some backstory about it. so because Beetlejuice worked for the civil service um, it's implied that he must have committed suicide and that was how he ended up dead and um, yeah. because Otho mentions it when they're having the day dinner he like jokes about it that this is apparently what happens but also when you're when like Barbara and Adam are in the waiting room and when they meet the various people so like the receptionist lady talks about her little accident and she's got marks in her wrists and Miss Argentina yeah Miss Argentina (laughs) and there's like the one of the guys who works in the back room is like going from like a noose and he's wearing like a suit so it's like implied that he's like a businessman who killed himself and even Juno has yeah, a little she's... slit on her throat Yeah. so there's an implication that I don't think they really make much of in this film but might have in another draft where Beetlejuice apparently was jilted and committed suicide but oh, maybe wow. but then there's like a whole thing about like you're stuck for 125 years but it's not really clear if that applies to if you're in the civil service see these are all conceptually fantastic ideas like yeah they're brilliant concepts that just don't get fully explored and again I'm not mad about it because I still yeah. really enjoy the movie and I'm along for the ride but there's something in the, in there that would be amazing to explore because I know that they, they really struggle there's constant talk of a sequel but the struggle is the script like getting that right because I think like they have to get Michael Keaton back and Michael Keaton I think is in theory on board but he needs it's a really good script which is which makes total mm-hmm. sense and I think maybe there's something in that like to explore those elements of it really fully in a really clever way that would yeah. be the way to deliver on a really good sequel script because they're brilliant or it's almost like it should be like prestige TV oh I'd love that <laughs> you know like a like a really like a dark version of The Good Place or something oh my god that would be amazing oh my god Jackie that's yeah. an amazing idea can we pitch that can yes. we, like, <laughs> let's tweet Jamila Jamil she'll make it happen she'll make it happen for <laughs> us yeah we could get um, Dan Levy on board is like like a, an executive. I'll just make it a full a full on Shit's Creek good place. People just cross over. Yeah. same universe. Make it happen. Holy shit! Well, I might just do some fan fiction if I can't actually get that to yeah. happen in real life. I think it would do well. I bet there's a lot of fan crossover there. Well, it's interesting the things that do appear in terms of like the surrounding world of Beetlejuice and the ideas that it inspired because did you ever watch the cartoon? Yeah, because I think that might be where the idea that Beetlejuice isn't a bad guy comes from because it's such a different thing. Um, yeah, I've they really watched, run with it that he's, yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's like, he's like her pal. He's yeah. like, it's, it's more like Drop Dead Fred or something. Yeah, it's a lot like Drop Dead Fred and they go on the adventures together in the, in the Neverworld or other, I can't remember what they refer to it as, but it's like heavily in 
implied that like I don't know if he's in love with Lydia Beetlejuice, but he like he dotes on her. Like they are best yeah. pals, and he would do absolutely anything for her. And it's just this really sweet relationship <laughs> at the center of this utterly chaotic cartoon. <laughs> um, I love the cartoon. I actually revisited it uh, recently and th- thinking ahead to doing this, and it is it is still brilliant. But like it is also the same reaction you had to watching the movie again. It's just like this is completely what. What is happening? Like, like- I think I, I went and I watched the first episode and but I watched it in bed as I was trying to go to sleep. I was like, I'm just gonna put this on instead of like normally it was like Bob's burgers or something. I was like, I'll just put Beatles just on. And then I was like falling asleep being like this was a bad idea because I had some, really some weird, weird dreaming. But yeah, it was it was clearly quite sweet. The way he talks to her is quite romantic. Mm-hmm. Almost like a he's like a needy best friend. Yeah. It's it doesn't have um like heavy romantic undertones but there's enough in there to suggest that he loves her if it's not it's not that he might be in love with her he just he loves her and it's very it's just it's just an interesting thing to extract from that movie and then decide that that's the thing you're going to play on yeah um but uh and interestingly the the musical which is on broadway at the moment which is fantastic the the soundtrack i haven't i haven't seen it sadly live but i've listened to the soundtrack quite a number of times and there's another thing that that script for the musical draws on is um the absence of lydia's mother which Mm -hmm. is never really addressed like her biological mother um because it's Mm -hmm. never really addressed in the movie which brings me back around to my original point that I was trying to get at, that like the relationships between the family, like Lydia, Delia and Charles. 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 Charles is not really explored at all, but you and you don't even really get any tenderness from them at all until the very, very end. Yeah. Um, and then, then there's stuff in their performances that show that they are a family unit, which doesn't get really at all touched yeah. on until then. Yeah, there's like there's hints of it because it's not ever implied that they just don't care about Lydia at all. Mm-hmm. It's like she's she's a misanthropic teenager who's not understood by the people who are raising her, and that's you know that doesn't imply neglect or abuse necessarily. Um, yeah, that can, that's just the way being a teenager can feel sometimes. And there, I think there's maybe a, a bit where I think Charles is talking to Delia and says like maybe this isn't the best environment for her. And he talks about, oh, we can we can make you a dark room in the basement because she's into photography. And she like says the line, like, my whole life is a dark room. Dark, dark room. Yeah. <laughs> she's got some killer lines. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she just, and she's great at it as well. Like she just is like, we've all, we've all known that teenager. We've all been that teenager for at least one day of our lives. Yeah. And so it's not like implied that like he doesn't care. Like it's definitely hinted at that he's moved them all there without really asking them if they want to or not. Like Delia is just trying to make the best of what she sees as an absolutely diabolical situation. Yeah. Lydia is kind of just like miserable wherever. And yeah. Delia says something like, you were miserable in New York. You're miserable here. Yeah. Glad to see somebody's not been completely uprooted. And and you get the impression like they don't really get on, but they just leave each other alone. Yeah, and I think I think what the only thing that is maybe just a little bit lacking for me. Um, and again, how you know you need more time and more like of a focus of what your movie's about, I guess, to explore this. But and again, this is why I think the musical does this quite economically and quickly. It sets up at the start that Lydia is devastated by the loss of her mother, right. and Charles is remarried quite quickly, or got is, is got. There's another woman on the scene. Quite, I don't think they're married at the top of the musical, and he's trying to get Lydia to just get over it and get happy because that's how his approach to it is. Like we just need to get on with our lives, and she can't. She just can't. She can't do it, and so. It, the suicidal elements that come around in her, you know, I want to get in and Adam and Barbara stopping stopping her and Beetle just being like, why? Why would you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Comes from that that deep depression that she's in from the loss of her mother, which is, I think, it, it's a really nice bit of, of writing. It makes sense mm-hmm. um, rather. And I think if that had been laced into the movie a little bit more, I think I would have appreciated where Lydia was mentally yeah. a bit more um, because again, I totally get the angsty teenager thing and it's kind of funny as it's played initially, but then no, suddenly but she's writing totally a right. suicide note. It does and, make a lot more sense. And I feel like, I mean, this could just be me being scatterbrained and stiff headed, but like, I don't think there's much preamble in the movie before we see Lydia writing a suicide note and getting like prepped Mm-mm. to kill herself, which is a pretty heavy note. So it feels mm-hmm. like, yeah, if there'd just been a little bit more of a development there and that could have been done through the family, maybe that would have been a little bit nicer. But it gets us to where we need to go, I suppose, and gives Beetlejuice slash Michael Keaton his only moment of pathos in the performance, which is when she tells him, I want to get in. And he's like, 
why yeah uh, it's just the only probably one of the only moment it's just one word but it's the way he delivers it that's so like it lands it really lands it's the bit he's kept from like the original like really dark like original Beetle just wishes no well in Lydia um, but the only bit he's kind of kept she says something he says something about like when he turns into the snake banister yeah um, <laughs> we've come for your daughter Chuck yeah <laughs> and he says something like that and then he says something to the Maitlands about like how he feels like she understands him mm-hmm. and and that's what they've taken and really expanded into into the cartoon is like he feels like a pathos with her and like yeah. she's his people but yeah but it's like it's not that he doesn't care about her or he wants anything bad to happen to her like he drops her dad like from oh, yeah from a great height like, <laughs> he could have really got really seriously hurt yeah. um but he doesn't act like he just frightens her he doesn't make any moves to hurt her at all although I mean, he, does, I mean, not, he does try and force her into an underage marriage so like I'm, I'm not like trying to be a Beetlejuice apologist no 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 um, I don't know what my point is here actually well, I think I think your point is that there's more in the movie to imply that you could expand on that relationship than there yeah. is to not. I think there's there's the one moment when he's the snake where he approaches Lydia and it does look like it, it's going somewhere sinister. And then Barbara yeah. pops out. She's like, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice to get him to go yeah. away. And That's you're like, true. if she hadn't appeared, what was going to happen there? So, yeah, it kind of swings back and forth, I think, in its decisions around where they want Beetlejuice to sit in his actual approach to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's the, the musical does that a little bit as well. There's some jokes in the script of the musical where it's like he jokes about killing her dad, and 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 she's like, "What?" And he's like, "Never mind." So it's like it's, <laughs> it's sort of played with, and the 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 way that the musical arcs their relationship, it's much more of a buddy buddy double act, like in the right. cartoon. So I think there's there's obviously something in the movie that I think we're all picking up on that's there. It's just. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, is it just maybe the movie itself is a little bit confused by this like dark, dark source material? Yeah, and Michael Keaton making it up on the spot what he's <laughs> deciding to say, and like coming out to something that's like weirdly kind of cute. Yeah, and nobody's really quite sure how we got there, but like we're all kind of fine with it because it was a long time ago and we're millennials. Like, I think that's it. Like, I yeah. think that's, that's just what's happened. And then, but then you've got the way that. All that happens when people who watch things as kids grow up and write material about them as adults. It's like we've reconciled it and somebody's written yeah. the exposition that we needed at the time, which is really good. I'd really like to see that. I didn't know that there was a musical until I started like researching for this podcast. Oh, you should yeah. listen to the soundtrack. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. It's so funny. I, the one thing I will say is though, uh, how there's a song in it called Creepy Old Guy and it's Lydia <laughs> singing about marrying her very own creepy old guy. So they keep the wedding scenario in, but I because I haven't seen it and the, the actual soundtrack itself doesn't contain a link, I'm not entirely sure how they get there. <laughs> like, I don't know right. quite... What's the scene? Yeah, what's <laughs> the scene before, a creepy old guy? I um, guess if it's, like, if it's a buddy act, like, from the little that I've seen and remember about the, the cartoon, like, there are bits in it where Lydia does put herself in the line to get Beetle just out of a jam. Yeah. You know, she would visa marry him. Yeah, so they're buddies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think also there's something again and we've touched on this before like I said in previous podcasts there's something about uh, we forgive so many sins at the centre of a really hilarious brilliant performance the vaudevillian nature of Michael Keaton's delivery even when he's like when he's been released and he's sorting everything out at the end like getting the maintenance off the the weird mummified seance thing that's happening to them and then he sort of takes care of Otho which and and it's just and then, and then he goes up to uh, Charles and is like, I'll take care of the dowry dad and gives him a handful of snakes. It's all just like, yeah. <laughs> it's so theatrical. It's vaudevillian to me. Like, it's so funny that you're just like, this is played for laughs, so I can't see him as evil. <laughs> and, it, and it is, and also like, because apart from Lydia and the Maitlands, everybody there has done something wrong. Oh like, yeah, they're every, all like, dicks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then it's like also essentially is like accidentally exercising them. Like he hasn't meant to do that. He's yeah. just reading a, a random page from the Handbook of the Dead, which is referred to like several times. It's like it's reading, it's like reading stereo instructions. It's really yeah. complex and hard to read. So he is basically he he just wants them to show up so that they can monetize the yeah. haunting. And but then they start like Barbara starts to shrivel up and he can't undo it. And like Delia's getting really distressed and be like, what? 
the fuck like stop this mm-hmm. and Charles is like Otho that's enough and he's like no I'm sorry like I can't I don't well I don't know what yeah. I'm doing actually <laughs> um so it's just like that arrogance of like I don't know like for force like exploiting people for money and like Otho is like one of the only true antagonists of the film like he's not yeah he's, he's a con artist only, yeah <laughs> and but even at the same time like he's not enjoying watching the suffering of Barbara and Adam no um but like they're all kind of there and learn a lesson and the only person who really gets any kind of comeuppance at the end is Otho and then Beetlejuice and it's oh, it's such a weird movie it is a weird movie and I think um, the fact that we the button on the movie to a certain extent comes back to Beetlejuice to show you he's okay is yeah. testament to the fact that they're like, no, we don't really dislike him that much. <laughs> We're just sending him back to where he's supposed to be. Like yeah. he's, he's essentially he's like an afterlife fugitive. Yeah. <laughs> like, and is that maybe why he's been around for so long? Because like he hasn't fulfilled his debt to afterlife society or something? Who knows? Who I'm knows? Shrugging. Probably nobody. <laughs> Jackie. Don't have a clue. Yeah. yeah, you get that bit at the end. And like, yeah, he's like in the waiting room and gets his head shrunk for trying to cheat so the funny. witch doctor guy. And then he's like, maybe this is a good look for me. Like, he's not even that upset that his head's been shrunk. He's Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. <laughs> that whole scene just cracks me up. And I love the physical comedy that Michael Keaton delivers in it when he's he's when he's feeling up the the girl who's been chopped in half. The, yeah, the, the magician's assistant. assistant. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and she hits him from the other side with the book, and he just does this like cartoon like yeah, like, oh, he's sitting there, <laughs> yeah. but then like you know moves moves seats like. <laughs> Like, good for you. You know you were making her uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be feeling up a strange pair of legs. No, and, no, you shouldn't. And again, it's but, one of those things that's like, I can't be mad at it because also just the visual gag of him thinking he can get away with feeling her up because her legs are here and she's <laughs> over there. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just too good. It's too funny to be mad. There's um, so much yeah. in there. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I had a little bit of um, a personal nostalgia. I don't know if this is interesting enough for anyone to listen to, but um, Miss Argentina, the receptionist, looked really familiar and I looked her up and the only thing I've seen her, she's in The Three Amigos. She's like the living interest in the three amigos uh her name's patrice martinez she sadly passed away a few years ago but i was like how why is this green lady familiar and she played senorita victoria escalante in a television series of zorro all right okay um, that ran it was only on telly for like a couple of years but it was in a really specific couple of years when i was like five and six years old and i was obsessed with it it was the first thing i ever remember watching religiously and so she basically plays like zorro's love interest so she's in love with zorro but she she's like friends with don diego who's which is essentially like being in love with batman but friends with bruce wayne like right. she's rachel batman like okay. she's a bit like obsessed with don diego for putting up with the Alcalde's evil antics but also like she runs the bar like she's like quite a good feminist character like she was quite strong she didn't really like being saved and would like always like stick up for the townspeople and so that's anyway that's where I knew her from that's fun she sounds great well I can give you a fun fact as well Um, the actress who plays Delia in the musical Mm -hmm. also plays Miss Argentina and she has a super fast quick change from being Delia uh, to going completely green and becoming Miss Argentina for her big number. That must be so hard. <laughs> yeah, her... it's not just the costume change; it's like an entire skin color change. Yeah, I think she's got. I think she's got the interval to do it, but it's still not. It's the considering she has to go completely green. It's it's fast, and she sings a big number in the second act as Miss Argentina about if she knew then what she knows now, and it's the whole Aww. like understanding that uh, maybe it's not the best way out, and you're better off. You're better off with us than not <laughs> dealing with your problems yeah yeah um, we've not talked about the Maitlands very much we haven't talked about the Maitlands yeah. again the Maitlands live in a an underdeveloped plotline space I think as well um because we we had a little tiny whisper of not having a baby and that being a problem oh really. yeah that's a horrible like actually yeah we say Otho's the only true antagonist fucking Jane fucking fuck Jane. off <laughs> 
Fuck you, Jane. How Fuck you. And the fucking you. soccer mom car you rode in on. Fuck right off. Yeah. <laughs> she is the absolute worst person in this film. She is. She's pure evil. She's yeah. not like, Beetlejuice is not evil. Jane is fucking evil. Leave these people alone. Leave, Leave them, them alone. alone. Stop not. Yeah, because it's like you get all you really know about them from the start. And it's, it's, it's quite nice character development for them. It's like, you just know that they're just obsessed with each other. Yeah. Um, their anniversary presents to each other are like, just like expensive things to make the house nice. So I think um, <laughs> Adam gets Manchurian tongue oil, which is like what you use to spruce up wooden furniture. Mm-hmm. And he gets Barbara, like an expensive, I assume Laura Ashley wallpaper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Definitely <laughs> Laura Ashley. <laughs> to go with her Laura Ashley prairie dress that she wears for the whole film. Yeah. Um, and that's very much their vibe. And they just like they've got two weeks off work, which in America is like your entire annual leave. Yeah. And are just spending it in their house together. I know, it's really sweet. It's really, really cute. And the first we hear about the fact that maybe they've not had children and people feel like they should have is that Jane shows up at their house she's a realtor shows up at their house tells them about somebody in New York presumably Charles who wants to buy the house for like this amazing price and they're like no we don't even want to see it this is our house we love it yeah. fuck off Jane stop sending our house to people Yeah. and she like says a few times like oh it should just be like a family should live here mm-hmm. which is just brutal and then there's the bit in the car when it's just quite clear from the way Barbara talks about it that she'd love to have children and yeah. they've tried and they can't and, it, and there's there's a sadness about them and it's yeah. just, and it's that thing of like, just like, how dare you make a woman feel bad for not having children? Like yeah. you don't know what's going on in people's lives. Fuck off. Well, I think the worst part of it is that Jane clearly knows because there's this yeah. beat where she mentions this, but that is too big. It really should be for a family. And then there's a beat where Gina Davis gives us sad eyes. And then, mm-hmm. and she's like, Oh, I'm sorry, pumpkin. I didn't mean anything by it. So it's the imp- implication being like, there's, and it ha- there's, there's history there where they've struggled to have children. Jane knows about it. And yeah. yet it's I think campaigning she's actually hard. Yeah, just bugger off, and it—it's the biggest injustice of the whole film that she got that commission. I fuck it, D- Jackie. Don't even get me started. Like that is like the one thing missing from this film is that we should have had Jane round the table and Beetlejuice should have fired her through a fucking ceiling. Like, yeah, yeah. Where is Jane's comeuppance? Yeah, she got a healthy commission. She got what she wanted, and I just—I hate her so much. I really hate Jane. Yeah. Like Jane can fuck off. She really can. She's the worst. She's mm-hmm. the worst person in this film. Um, and there's also the bit where she shows up when the Dietzes have moved in, she shows up and she has her daughter in the back and they're wearing matching blouses and yellow cardigans. Oh. And she's like, oh, you're just the worst. And your daughter's probably going to bully Lydia at school. Yeah, the devil is alive and well in Jane. Like, yeah. And she also gives she gives Lydia a side eye. She gives her like Ugh, an up and down yeah. look at Lydia and like shakes her head. This woman, <laughs> I could do a whole podcast about how much I hate Jane. In fact, I think my note I did have an early note that was like fucking Jane. I mean fuck off Jane. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I also have a note that starts oh fuck off Jane. Can you just fuck off? Yeah, this and bitch in capitals. <laughs> fuck off Jane. <laughs> We both had like independent rage. <laughs> she's a fucking, <laughs> she's a fucking boot. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna calm down. Anyway, um, so I do have a hot take. Um, okay, for this movie. Um, and I know I've seen this online. I, I know other people share this opinion, so it's maybe not that hot. And I'm sorry, Barbara. I really am sorry. I know you were really excited about that Laura Ashley paper. However, I fucking hate the Maitland's taste. And I think the house looks better after Delia has her. <laughs> I, think, I think bits of it, bits of it do. I mean, definitely in the way that, you know, we're both women who enjoy an outfit. And we <laughs> definitely both have Barbara days, Lydia days and Delia days. Like we have all of the... All of those. We never have a Jane day because fuck those. No, fuck Jane. <laughs> but, um, I, think, I think we should get badges made up that just say like, like we can have one that says fuck book, one yeah. that says fuck Jane. We'll just collect we like, them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and yeah, there's a bit where, because um, their original kitchen is the same colour as your kitchen. It's that like nice like teal colour, mm-hmm. uh, like a bright teal uh, and I would say mine's more seafoam green. Okay, but, I'm sorry. You no, know, whatever, Jackie. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I think uh, it's fuck's sake. <laughs> but um, I do like it when they redo the kitchen and Delia's making her dinner for seven. Like the nice, like bright blue 
tops and stuff. Yeah, the kitchen's cool. It's a bit much. It's cool. I don't know if I'd want to live there. No, no, it's a bit cold for, you know, I I don't, I like a little bit of cottage core as established at the top of the Mm. podcast, but (laughs) there's just something so, I don't know. It's just a little bit too much. It's just too... Too cottagey, too kitsch, and too old person-y for Adam and Barbara. I feel like Adam and Barbara yeah. are kind of young. And like I'm just like, guys, what's with the doilies and the four-poster bed with the, the quilt? And I just, I, I don't, know. like... I think it's just them, though. And I think that they're just like the quintessential, like, good people, good, wholesome Americans who are just quite happy with their lot in life. Like, we just want to be in our house, make it comfortable. This is, like probably the kind of decor that we grew up with we just want to have this and just enjoy each other's company and grow old together and you know, stay in love I feel like, like that's would, all lovely but can they not yeah. have taste as well well they just have different taste from you Louise <laughs> okay fine <laughs> don't make me a Jane in this situation <laughs> no you're, you would never you would never, never. but never. um you know we're city ladies <laughs> people are growing different in winter river connecticut this is true and uh-huh. speaking of city ladies taste and fits delia does reign supreme in this movie for all of that she's amazing i do yeah. i do love some of what delia has going on if i thought for a second i could get away with gelling my sideburns in a curly fashion to the side of my face and make it work i would do this i mean why not give it a go um, is the question okay well okay I, you I, said you're I, having a, at your next party, I'll give it a go. Give it a go. Um, I also enjoy it. I think that she combines that look with, um, is it a one glove, one glove situation? Yeah, she has one long glove, one elbow length black glove and one arm not gloved. Does she? Yeah, it's, it's quite special. There's a whole, like, I mean, Delia Dietz has a, has a style icon Pinterest page. Like, yeah, she has a style icon. Her clothes are great. And like her taste is consistent, whether or not somebody likes it, like her, the way she dresses, the way she decorates her house and her sculptures match. Yeah. Um, like she has an aesthetic. She does have an aesthetic. Yeah. I don't think there's any, I, her sculptures are, I mean, they're okay. <laughs> they're not to my taste. They're not to my taste. <laughs> Although having said all that, like her, her art may not be great, but the way her agent speaks to her is, is some bullshit. Yeah. Um, I do actually feel quite, I feel for Delia. I feel like she's somebody who's trying really, really hard to cultivate being the kind of artist she wants to be and is desperate to maybe break into this cool set in New York, this cool artist set and isn't quite managing it. And I do yeah. feel for her. I <laughs> she's a bit more, she's also a bit David Rose. Yeah. <laughs> like, not really, obviously that's like a shit reference if you've come to listen to a Beetlejuice podcast and I haven't watched Shit's Creek, but she's not really, like, she's like a lot cooler in Connecticut than she was in New York. Yeah. And and she is a snob. There's no way getting around that. But at the same time, like, she is there. Yeah. She, she says things and she's not the most sympathetic of characters, but she doesn't really ever do anything that you can really take huge exception to in the film. Like, she is there. She's making the best of it. Yeah. with her her family like that she can and decorates the house she put I mean she puts her foot down at decorating the house because she has that line of what if you don't let me make this my own I'm gonna go insane and I'll take you with me yeah why is Catherine O'Hara not in more things she's so amazing she's she really so funny is. she's got such she and she's got such capacity for warmth as well like it's so weird that she's also the mum in Home Alone because mm-hmm. they're so different yeah I know. It is slightly odd that we don't have more of a prolific Hollywood presence from from Catherine O'Hara, actually. Mm. She really is very special. She's a very talented lady. And she Um, always gets like a mother or, I mean, she is beautiful. mm -hmm. Um, But when you see her in those films that she was in in the 80s and 90s, like she was such a beautiful woman. And it just feels like she was never cast. I mean, and women shouldn't be cast for that. And maybe it was the roles that she decided to take were a bit more interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, who knows? I, I, it's in terms of like her being quite Hollywood gorgeous. This film is one of those ones that exemplifies that. Like she's stunning in this film, um, and she's she's very carefully styled with the red lips and the and the outfits and the big earrings. Like she looks fantastic, yeah. and her hair her hair is a feature, a huge feature of her costuming mm-hmm. and how the character's presented as well. She looks she looks great. Did you notice that she's wearing um, a sort of very similar to Beetlejuice? Uh, sort of smock thing at the end no I didn't at the very end when she scares the shit out of Charles by presenting it's like a Beetlejuice sculpture yeah a Beetlejuice sculpture yeah yeah, when he's the snake and she's got like a a black and white striped sort of blazer or smock thing on which is I just think that I thought that was cute 
That is um, cute. Also, the other thing that's really cute about that scene, I'm just going to mention it now before I forget, because I think it's a brilliant little bit of set design. In the background of that scene, uh, she's on the cover of um, an art magazine. It's like... A, it's like Art in America or something. Art in America, yeah. yeah. It's uh, She's on the cover of Art in America and it's yeah. framed in the background in the study, which is... I love that. That's nice, isn't it? She's in something similar in an earlier scene, but it just feels very Beetlejuice, the thing she's got on. Um, yeah, it's like a black and white like vertical stripey yeah thing and uh charles quite sweetly is reading the living in the dead it's called he's reading a, another handbook so there's like the it's from the people who wrote the handbook for the recently deceased it's called the living in the dead harmonious lifestyles and peaceful coexistence yeah <laughs> so like it's very nice because like they've not made it so like oh she has a new set of parents it's like she no she has like one set of parents for one thing and she's got like the Maitlands for, you know, helping her with her maths and yeah. doing the wholesome cottagecore thing with. And there's something just really sweet about it. They're like, no, this is actually really nice. And we just all love this child and let's yeah. just all be here for her. It's, it's a lovely, it's a lovely way of ending it that doesn't feel too hammered home. Like it's very subtly implied that they're all getting on and like the fact Charles yeah. makes that brilliant comment this thing reads like stereo instructions and then yeah. he says uh, oh look sounds like um, Lydia got, did well on the math test so they know what's going to they, like they're all kind of integrated yeah. and and, and uh, in each other's yeah. lives um, it's like life is just much better if you I don't know don't try and make everyone be the same as you or something like there's something about yeah <laughs> like accepting diversity and having a nice time yeah non-traditional family non-traditional family units <laughs> yeah and and you know but that Adam and Barbara getting the family that they wanted and it maybe didn't look it doesn't look the way they thought it would it would but it's 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 just as good yeah um, like take love where you find it yeah it's really it's it's all there without being like shoved down your throat as it's sort of yeah it's not saccharine yeah but it is actually very sweet it kind of like yeah it just gets you with like a really lovely sweet ending after very little of the film is remotely anything approaching sweet or cute <laughs> yeah. what else do you want to talk about um, I suppose I'd love to give a shout out to all of the production design on this movie because it's an absolute masterpiece and everything about the afterlife is a work of pure art. And I think, if memory serves, mm -hmm. from the bit of research I did into this, like this was truly groundbreaking in terms of what it did for visual effects and utilising production design in a visual effect manner for what mm -hmm. they did. It really I mean, was Tim, something. Tim Burton and his cohort have been very like groundbreaking in terms of stop motion and the way they've used that particular... And also, like, I can't think of another director who has more of a recognisable style than he does. Yeah. Like, well, there's, was... There are ones that do have a recognisable style, like Wes Anderson and Tarantino to an extent, but... I think it's... He's a, he's a, a visual guy. He's an artist and he was in the world of Disney um, prior to becoming a, a film director in his own right, you know, working working in the animation division of Walt Disney he's just like a hugely visual guy mm -hmm. in terms of that way of working so yeah it, it feels it feels very on point for Tim Burton for this movie to kind of not sacrifice plot but like plot being somewhat secondary to the way the thing looks um and feels. yeah it's just fun to watch you could watch yeah. the whole thing on mute and still have quite an enjoyable time yeah it's it is, it is stunning and the the way that the afterlife office setup looks I just think that's phenomenal and like mm -hmm. it's great to pause when you're in the waiting room and actually look at each individual and see how they died because it's there yeah. in, in the visual gag yeah there's like um, the guy who's been eaten by a shark and <laughs> the guy who offers Adam a cigarette and it's clearly like it's like implied that he's like set himself on fire yeah and it's really good it's, good it's so well thought out it's like and it's I guess it's like when you watch um, Nightmare Before Christmas and it's it's the similar thing. It's like every single character has like, or like oh, that's the werewolf, like those are the witches. But like every, they all are just such well thought out. Like somebody has, I guess it's like, it's not an actor in a costume, even though obviously that is, takes a lot of thought as well. But it's like somebody's had to sit and make this thing out of clay and, yeah. and think about what happened <laughs> yeah. here. But it's like, yeah, we have this afterlife waiting room how are we going to make it the most afterlife we possibly can mm -hmm. and it's just and it's even like when when they meet Juno and she has like she's smoking and like it comes out of her neck wound like yeah. smoke comes out of her neck wound <laughs> and like 
there's so much attention to detail and I think that you always get that in a in fairness I haven't seen as many of Tim Burton's recent films because I haven't enjoyed them quite as much as the older ones that's fair um, they're not as great yeah. they just aren't <laughs> and um, it's kind of yeah you're kind of like more Michael Keaton less Johnny Depp yes please <laughs> <laughs> yes please ma'am more Helena Bonham Carter sure mm-hmm. um, but yeah there's oh, he is it's, I do love I do love him but yeah, he he really had such a nice time making this. Yeah, and he's got his musical soulmate in Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. Born and to be together. Uh-huh. <laughs> and were they both? Because we talked about the band. Were they both in Oingo Boingo? No, I don't think so. Sadly, no. not. That would have been great, though. <laughs> Who was in Oingo Boingo? Was uh, it just Danny Elfman? I think it was just Danny Elfman. Yeah, I mean, I, there were other people in Oingo Boingo. Yeah. But I don't think they are all like you know. <laughs> Film composers and film directors of 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 that scale. <laughs> yeah, Danny Elfman. Yeah, I say I say you could watch this film on mute, but actually you, sh- you shouldn't. You should watch you should. it at least with a, a Danny Elfman soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's so good. I love the pair of them together. Mm-hmm. We also have a supreme queen of the universe, Gina Davis, in this. Of course, yeah. And um, that we should uh, just. She's the opposite of Jane. She she's is. everything anyone should aspire to be as a person I was talking to a friend of mine about this I think I might have sent you the screenshot of the conversation where I was like oh, I'm watching Beetlejuice and it was like a, a male friend I was talking to and he messaged back and like oh I used to fancy her so much and I was like yeah Gina Davis yeah she's amazing and he was like just sent me back like like one of those gifts of like the lady trying to work out the algebra <laughs> like and I was like oh did you mean Renona Ryder and he was like yes obviously I was like why obviously <laughs> Yeah. Even though I think I think everybody who's of our generation had a crush on Winona Ryder growing up, but Gina, my I don't know, my heart belongs to Gina Davis. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's Gina all the way, and she is stunning. She's, I mean, she's she's beautiful. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman, and she's yeah, she's she's amazing and beautiful on the inside as well as out. Firstly, well, firstly, Barbara is an amazing character because I think we first meet her, and she's quite. I hesitate to use the word meek, but there's that element of her, like she's not the most. She's gentle. Um, she's ge- yeah, gentle is the right word. She's yeah. she's she is gentle exactly, and and loving and all of those lovely lovely adjectives for a nice mm-hmm. person. But then she's also the one who has the best grip on the afterlife through the, throughout the film. Like Adam's trying to, he's doing the eighties husband thing and reading the manual. And she is the one who sort of just like learns by doing a little bit. Like mm. she. Um, I guess like the main thing like she knows how to wrangle Beetlejuice like she's the fast thinker and like getting him in and getting him out but also at the end like he like knocks her into the moons of Saturn yeah where the sand snakes are and it's apparently a thing that happens apparently it's a thing that happens (laughs) she actually rides a sand snake into the wedding which eats Beetlejuice and that's that's how she so like she is the hero of the film yeah and goodness only knows what the uh, deleted scene involves with her wrangling the yeah. sand snake on on, on, on Jupiter uh, or Saturn. Sorry, is it Saturn? It's Saturn. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she is. She she rides in like the cavalry. Mm-hmm. Um, although Adam does his bit too with the uh, getting in the car in the model and then driving into Beetlejuice's foot. Oh, um, that's true. He does his best. They're both good. Best. They're both really good. They both and really then, come into their own. <laughs> yeah. And Gina Davis in real life is a total hero as well. She has, she founded the Gina Davis Institute, Institute. for Gender and Media. She sure did. Um, which conducts all kinds of studies into the way that, I think from the start it was about, well, gender specifically, but I think now that they focus on all kinds of marginalisation. And she founded a film festival called the Bentonville Film Festival which I think was all online last year, possibly this year as well. And it's about spotlighting underrepresented voices specifically in Hollywood. So I think it was something like 80, 80 or 85% of the films were directed by women. But then also I think it was something like 60% were um, created by people of colour and 40 or so were LGBT. And it's, she just seems to just be a person who is using the platform she has to just try and make the world a better, more representative place. 
Yeah. Um, and they're doing a similar thing at the moment. I was having a look at the website and the website is just like a really just good. It's just it just looks like a, a, a centre where lots of good people have gone to try and do good things. And they're doing a thing about video games as well mm-hmm. and trying to make them more representative. And she had she she they did a big study about children's television and something like one in five characters in children's TV are female. Yeah. And uh, they took it to like. I can't remember if it was like PBS or something. They took it to like people who make children's TV. Be like, do you realise that this is this is the representation, and actually, it's caused there to be a lot more uh, representation for like little girls to look at, which is great. And she's just, ugh, I just love her so much. She's made and her, and you just look at her IMDb, and it's like a league of their own, and Thelma and Louise, and even the universally panned Cutthroat Island, which I have a soft spot for. <laughs> Like I, it always comes as a shock to me that that bombed, and it really did bomb. Like it made something like ten percent of what it cost. Um, yeah, but, people were not were not ready for no. for pirates. But I saw, yeah, and I saw it as a little girl, and I was like, I loved pirates, but I had never seen a lady captain before, and like that's all I took from it. Is like she is really tough and really clever, and people are really properly afraid of her. But you know, she's she's getting dirty and sweaty and sword fighting and winning. And you didn't see that because you just didn't see it. So yeah. she did it. And then I had that. And that's great because I grew up thinking I could be a, a pirate captain. Yeah. Which <laughs> is, is a good thing to say to have. But I worked really hard and went to university. <laughs> <laughs> I too could be a pirate captain. Absolutely. Um, so she's just, and like long kiss goodnight. Like I can't think of anything Gina Davis has ever done that isn't aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant. She has an icon in every in every sense. We do love Gina. We do. Um, She's amazing. Also, shout out to Alec Baldwin being a Baldwin, like originating that. (laughs) And this is a film where you can see that. Yeah, you can see him being a Baldwin. (laughs) He he is very much a Baldwin in this. (laughs) That's all I have to say on that front. (laughs) No, he does a good job. He does a good job. Is there anything else we haven't covered? We should just do this every time. Is this how people do reasonably like the podcast? I think this is how, yeah, they just don't, they don't worry too much about covering every last frame of the movie <laughs> yeah I think uh I think that's how it works I didn't realize before I did this that he it was so improvised Michael Keaton's performance mm-hmm. and then but like watching it knowing that there are bits that you can totally tell that he just actually doesn't even know how he's gonna finish a sentence <laughs> like <laughs> there's like a bit where he's doing his advert like when they when they first see him on the telly and he finishes it where he's like he says something like he's like I'll eat anything you want me to eat. I'll swallow anything you want me to swallow. Come on down, I'll <laughs> chew on a dog. Yeah. And it's like the way he says it, it's like, he was like, what were you going to say there, Michael? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now just... when you see it, it's like, the, even like the way he does his hand, he sort of sweeps it around. We're like, let's try this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some phenomenal bits from, I, yeah. one of my all-time favourites is his like, uh, when in response to Adam saying, what are your qualifications? Oh God, yeah, and you got you did a TikTok. About I did a TikTok. Thing. Yeah, it was so good. <laughs> I love it so much. I think it's just pitched absolutely perfectly. It makes me it makes me properly cry with laughter every time. Yeah, it's so good. And there's also a bit I think that was just Michael Keaton doing it that they kept in where when the he's pissed off at them. They I think they get I, I they basically they're not hiring him or they've put him back. He's annoyed at the Maitlands. And he's having a strop in the in the model, and he like kicks the tree, and the tree falls over, and he goes, "Nice fucking model." Yeah, and it's like, I think it's, this is one of the only. It's like a PG thirteen, but it's like one of the only PG thirteens where they 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 say fuck in it. Yeah, and because it's just like that's just what he said. But apparently that was Michael Keaton kicked the tree and it fell over and it wasn't supposed to, so he just said that. <laughs> I love that so much and then and then he grabs his crotch and they put in a sound effect (laughs) and there was just something about they were just he came on and I think it was an interview I saw with Michael Keaton where he was like Tim Burton basically just like trusted him with it so he he decided how he wanted Beetlejuice to look so he went in was talking to the makeup lady and was like who I think was nominated for an Oscar or won an Oscar for the way that she did his makeup, rightly so. But um, he was like, yeah, I kind of want my hair to look like I've stuck my finger in a socket and uh, <laughs> I would like mold on my face. And But like they didn't know what he was going to look like. So he basically came onto the set dressed how he 
envisaged Beetlejuice looking and Tim Burton was like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is great, yeah. Hi, Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, and then it was like, and he, but he was like doing the thing. They were basically just like, yeah, just say things, just go. And he just did it. And he was like, I don't know if this is what they want at all, but nobody was telling him to stop. So he just kept on at it. And it's just, it's just great. It's all these yeah. choices. And I think I like sent you like my favorite bit where <laughs> Barbara just, like he's trying to get married to, to Lydia and Barbara says like one Beetlejuice and he just like makes like this high pitched scream and everything leading up to that is it's that whole bit <laughs> the way he counteracts the Maitlands as they try and stop him and, and yeah. it's just like it's so funny this squeak, it's like, and then yeah. it's, and then the baseball like throwing of the the bit of metal that just kind of slams onto Gina's mouth yeah. it's just it's all fantastic it's and it's, th- it's stuff like that. Like, I guess maybe there is um, that the, the enjoyment of that is heightened because it is a finale piece, actually, because like coming back mm-hmm. to the idea that I feel like there's not enough Beetlejuice. Maybe that's a good thing because we get it get peppered throughout and then we get this fantastic set piece at the end where he gets to just be really funny and really, really go to town on the, the physical comedy and the improvisation. Yeah. Um, it makes me wonder, like, you know how you hear about like Robin Williams voicing the genie? And there's just like hours and hours and hours and hours of him just going off on one that like, and a lot of it being like really filthy and you can possibly put that in a Disney film. <laughs> like it makes me just wonder like what was on the cutting room floor. Oh God, that would be, that would be wonderful to get access to. And there's like, there's line delivery, like the random lines, but they're, it's just the way he delivers them are really funny. I like one of my favourites is when um, uh, Lydia says, no, I think I want to talk to Barbara. And he goes, no, 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 no. and that cracks me up every time it's just the way he delivers it it's a good film it's so enjoyable important not to overthink it even though that our entire podcast is about overthinking yeah (laughs) just enjoy it just enjoy it guys enjoy gina davis enjoy alec baldwin enjoy michael keaton Catherine o'hara winona ryder Mm -hmm. it's all good stuff and yeah and yeah yeah i think uh we'll see you on the other side See the other side. We're the host with the most, baby. We are the host with the most, baby. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> that was I'll Have What She's Podcasting. Thanks to Chris Gorman for the edit and the sound design. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's Podcasting. If you liked this, you might also enjoy our sister podcast, Persistent and Nasty, which is all about amplifying marginalised voices in film and theatre. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>